Okay, so uh, I've been doing some strange reading. Um, and in his book, entitled The Story of Gospel Hymns, uh, published in 1906, a guy by the name of Ira Sankey writes about a time when he sang for a guy named Dwight Moody at a revival meeting in Brockton, Massachusetts in 1886. And Sankey writes this, One night a young man rose in a testimony meeting and said, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust. I'm going to obey. And Sankey continues to write, So I just jotted that sentence down. And then I shared it with my friend, the Reverend John Samus, who was a Presbyterian minister, who turned it into a hymn, and this tune was born. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still, and with all who trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share. But our toil, he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For a favor he shows, for the joy he bestows, are for those who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he stands, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Do you know this week was the first time I ever heard that hymn? I didn't grow up in the church, and as I was reading that, I uh, consulted the, uh, the YouTubes, and I found several versions of that hymn. And the best version I found out there was uh, by Big Daddy Weave. And man, it is so good. So if you don't get anything else out of the message this morning, go to YouTube and listen to Big Daddy Weave's version of Trust and Obey. It'll really encourage you. This is uh, the big idea that Luke tries to help us understand about who Christ is and who we are um, around Jesus' temptation in the desert. That, that, that overcoming temptation... It's about trusting the Father and obeying his word. That, that's how it works. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 13. In the blue Bible, that's going to be on page 859. 859. And we're not going to have screens this morning because I really want to encourage you to open a Bible and follow along verse by verse as we go through God's word and continue to ask the Spirit of God to make his word come alive and effective in your life. This is really, really important. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, Blue Bible, page 859. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. What that means is that he remained true to his identity. And the way that Jesus remains true to his identity is by trusting the Father and obeying his word. And as it was for Jesus, so it is for us, that we overcome temptation by remaining true to our identity in Christ. And we stand firm in Christ by trusting the Father and obeying his word. And so right off the bat, there are three, three crucial pieces that Luke wants us to see 
He wants us to understand the context of what Jesus is doing and why Jesus is doing it. Look at verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. You know what that means? That means that the temptation of Jesus is a part of God's plan. This is God's initiative. It may seem like a surprise attack by Satan, but the Spirit leads Jesus into this conflict. Now, why would the Spirit lead Jesus into temptation? That doesn't sound very nice. The Spirit's going to lead Jesus into temptation for a very important reason. So remember, here's the context. Because at his baptism, Jesus' identity is proclaimed. And during his temptation in the desert, Jesus' identity is proven. That's what's going on here. Because Jesus is fully human, overcoming temptation will enable him to go to the cross as the unblemished, sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because Jesus is fully God, overcoming temptation will enable him to rise up from the grave as our conquering Savior and King who defeats sin and death and the devil. And so... Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert, not primarily as our example, but as our substitute and Savior. Yes, the way that Jesus overcomes temptation by trusting the Father and obeying his word is our example, is our strategy. But what God is doing here is so much more important than three principles for living a victorious Christian life. What's going on here is Jesus being there in our place on our behalf so that his victory can become our victory. And so this is the invitation for us into this story as we think more and more of our life in Christ and Christ's life in us. Look at verse 2. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. I can't even go 40 minutes without a snack. Come on, 40 days? Yeah, he was hungry. There's a couple of interesting things here. You notice that Luke doesn't introduce us to the devil? It's because Luke assumes that we're already familiar with him. Because it's the devil who first tempted Adam, not in a desert, but in a garden. And also you notice that Luke doesn't rehash the story of Israel. Now, he's just written out Jesus' genealogy. And so he assumes that we're already familiar with the story of Israel, especially the 40 days in the wilderness uh, of, of Israel and how that parallels the 40, sorry, the 40 years in the wilderness and how that parallels Jesus' 40 days here. This dramatic similarity is really hard to overestimate. Luke wants us to see this. What he wants us to see is that where Adam and Israel failed to trust and obey God, Jesus is now going to succeed. And that's the context of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. This is what Jesus is doing and why he's doing it and why it makes a difference for us. And Satan hates this. 
He, he hates that Jesus has been proclaimed the Son of God whom the Father loves and is well pleased. He hates it. And so he's going to come after Jesus and attack his identity. And he's going to attack his identity in three ways. He's going to tempt his appetite, his ambition, and his approval. And as we see these three ways that Jesus is tempted, I want to encourage us to ask the Spirit to show us which of these three ways we're most susceptible to the temptation of the evil one. Because just as Jesus is tempted by the devil, so we will be tempted by the devil. To throw off our identity, to move us out of trust and obey, obey the Lord. So verses three and four, temptation one, appetite. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And so in this first temptation, Satan's suggesting that there must be something wrong with the father's love since his son was hungry. The devil's basically saying, why would the beloved and approved son of God have to experience such terrible hunger? Hey, Jesus, where's your dad? Isn't he supposed to provide for you? Doesn't he care for you? Where is he now? And what Satan is doing is he's subtly using the same approach as he did on Eve in the garden. Eve, God's withholding something from you. Why can't you eat every tree in the garden? If God really loved you, he'd share everything with you. And so likewise, the first temptation of Jesus comes in the form of a challenge. Hey, Jesus, if you're the son of God, make some bread for yourself. What the devil's trying to do is drive a wedge between Jesus and his father by getting him to trust his own strength and depend on his own abilities. Hey, man, if you're the son of God, solve the problem yourself. Fix it. You're hungry. You've got the right to eat. Pick up one of those rocks laying there. Turn it into bread so you can eat. You can do it. And what we eventually realize is that the temptation really isn't about food. It's about trust and obedience. The devil's saying, hey, you don't need God. Trust yourself. Save yourself. Don't wait and depend on God to do it. God didn't really love you. He didn't care for you. He didn't care about your circumstances. And he's not going to help you. Do it yourself. You can do it. And Jesus answered, whoa, 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 whoa. It's written. God says that man shall not live on bread alone. What he's doing is quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3, where the Lord tells Israel that he was the one who allowed them to hunger in the wilderness and that he was the one who provided manna for them to eat. And when Israel trusted God and obeyed his instructions, they had plenty to eat. But when they got greedy and grumbly and disobeyed God's instructions, they went without. 
And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Satan, a man needs more than bread. More than anything else, a man needs God. A man needs to trust God. And God is with me. And I trust him. And I listen to God's word, not yours. I serve God, not myself. And I certainly do not serve you. How is it that the devil comes after your appetite? What it is that you hunger for, what it is that you long for, what it is that you seek to fulfill your life other than God and the things of God. Because here's the deal. Satan seeks you out. And he seeks you out to persuade you to distrust your father's care and provision. He'll come at you when you're weak and exhausted, when you're hungry and in need, and suggest that you shouldn't wait any longer, that God's not trustworthy, and that you should take matters into your own hands and do whatever you can to help yourself. You can do it. It's so subtle. And so... Oh, sneaky. And that's why the Lord teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. The Lord's not teaching us to ask the Lord simply to provide for physical food. He's inviting us and teaching us to pray a declaration of our trust in God for everything and our willingness to obey him no matter what our circumstance is. In Christ, our posture is to go to God with our daily needs, physical, emotional, spiritual, acknowledging our dependency upon him and asking for his provision in all things in every way. The truth is, is that you and I need bread for the body. But we don't live by physical bread alone. We also need bread for our soul. We need spiritual nourishment. And the spiritual food we need to remain healthy and grow strong is the word of God. That's why in our life groups, we do three things And one of the three things that we do is we sit together and open up the word of God. And we meet with Jesus through the word with the help of the Holy Spirit. We soap up together. We read the scripture in two or three different versions. And then we share our observations of what Jesus is doing and what we think that means. And then we share our applications, what we hear the Lord saying to us about who he is and who we are and how not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word, to take what we're hearing from the Lord and put that into practice. And then we pray for one another that we might have the desire and the ability to do what pleases God. Soaping up is a significant way that we band together to grow in our trust of the Father and obedience of his word. We need each other to do that. How is it 
that the Lord wants to grow you and your appetite for him and his kingdom so that you can resist the devil, stand firm, and watch the devil flee. Temptation two. Look at verses five through eight. The devil comes after Jesus' sense of identity around ambition. He leads him up to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. If you'll worship me, it'll all be yours. And so in this second temptation, Satan suggests that there must be something wrong with the Father's promise. The devil's basically saying, why would the anointed Messiah and king be sent to a desert instead of a castle? Look around, man. The only thing the Father has given you is loneliness and rocks and sand. What kind of promise is that? And Satan is using the same deceptive approach that he used on Eve in the garden. Did God really say... Do you really believe that fruit is bad? Just look at it. So big and juicy. Man, just take it. Just seize it. It'll be so good. Man, he's a liar. Total deceiver. And so the second temptation comes in the form of a false promise. A false promise. Hey man, hey son of man, hey son of God, he's a mocker. I can give you the nations. I can give you fame and fortune. I can give you a global empire surpassing Rome itself. If it's power you want, let me help you. You can have it all if you bow down and worship me. And wait, there's more. I'll throw in a set of Jinsu knives. Like, what's going on? Again, the temptation is not so much about kingdoms and power and authority as it is about trust and obedience. The Father already promised to give the Son all authority in heaven and earth. Every knee would bow. Every tongue would confess. All the nations would honor and worship him as Messiah and Lord. But first, he would have to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And so Satan, in his subtle, sneaky, strategic, <clears throat> is going after Jesus' identity, trying to knock him off his purpose by offering Jesus a crown without a cross. He can have glory without suffering. He can take it and live without having to die. Anybody ever been there? The subtle whispers of a crown without a cross? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And it's by dying that we have life. It's by humbling ourselves that we're exhausted. 
It's by trusting the Father and obeying his will that we are raised up and exalted with Christ. Have you ever been there? If you worship me, it'll all be yours. It's not an exaggeration to say that our salvation hangs on Jesus' response right here. Will Jesus trust the Father and obey the Father's design to bring about the salvation of the world through humble, sacrificial love as a suffering servant? Or will Jesus attempt to secure the salvation of humanity through worldly power and authority, through his own strength and ability for the sake of somehow seizing and grasping equality with God in the same way that Satan tried to do. What does Jesus say? Uh, It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is saying, Satan, no way. Satan, I'm not impressed. I'm not duped. I'm not deceived. I will not get distracted. Every minute of my day is devoted to honoring and serving the Father. There's no time left for you. I do it God's way, even if his way is the way of the cross. And nothing you have to give is worth giving up my relationship with my Father. Nothing you have to give me is worth giving up the inheritance that my Father has promised me. He alone loves me. He alone cares about me. And he alone deserves my worship. I trust God, not you. I listen to God's word, not yours. I serve God, not myself. And I sure as heaven don't serve you. Get behind me. Do you know what that's like? When the devil comes after you and tempts you toward worldly, earthly ambition? Here's the deal. Satan seeks to persuade you to distrust your inheritance and rebuff your heavenly reward to snatch and seize worldly power and worldly possessions to worship yourself and invite others to join you. Satan will come at you when you're broke and needy, when you're discontent and jealous, when you're greedy and covetous, and suggest that you shouldn't wait any longer, that God isn't trustworthy, that you should really take matters into your own hands and make a little compromise here and a little compromise there and take a little for yourself and take a little shortcut and keep up with the Joneses. And if there's an opening, accelerate right past them. Overcoming temptation is about trusting the Father and obeying His Word. That's not about gaining power and building our own kingdom so that others will worship us. It's about trusting the promises of God and worshiping Him above all else, seeking His kingdom and its righteousness and joining in Him to build it and extend it for His glory. That's our place. That's where we have life and life to the full. That's who we are in Christ. And that's why every Sunday we gather here for corporate worship. 
to confess our sin and to hear the declaration of God's forgiveness and love over us in Christ. To hear and respond to God's word and to be built up in the faith, to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, to be empowered to live for him and not ourselves, and then to stand up and humbly come forward and around this table to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Savior and Lord, and that as we hold out our hands and we take the bread and we we take the sip of wine, that we are nourished by his spiritual body and blood and assured that we're living members of his body, and heirs through hope of his eternal kingdom. That's why he came. That's what he has done for us. To call us sons and daughters of the Father, to bring us into his household, to set us around his table, to give us an inheritance that won't spoil or fade. In Christ, we have everything that we need for life and salvation. What else could we want? How is it that the enemy comes after you and your sense of ambition? Are you more susceptible to the temptation of appetite or ambition? Or maybe it's approval. Maybe you're like me, you got all three working pretty strongly. But we all major in at least one of them. Let's look at approval, verses 9 and 10. The devil leads Jesus to Jerusalem and stands him on the highest point of the temple and says, hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. I mean, the people will love it. He'll command his angels concerning you and he'll guard you carefully and they'll lift you up in their hands and you'll not strike your foot against the stone. You see what the devil's doing? This third temptation, he's trying to get Jesus to question the Father's faithfulness. The devil's basically saying that the Father really loves you. If the promises of the Father are really true, if you're all that, Prove it. The devil takes Jesus up to the most prominent place of Israel. And he twists Psalm 91 and tries to get Jesus to buy in to a marketing plan rather than a salvation plan. And you can imagine how such a daring feat would have impacted Jesus' ministry. Like, this would have been really cool. I mean, if the crowds saw Jesus jump from the top of the temple and angels descended from heaven in this spectacular rescue, it would have proven beyond a shadow of the doubt that God was with him. People would love it. They love him. I mean, surely they'd follow him after that, right? So this third temptation comes in the form of a dare. Hey, Jesus, come on, man, jump jump, dude. Jump. Hey, if you've got what it takes, jump. 
If you think God is faithful, jump. Man, he'll rescue you in midair. Then everybody will see and they'll fall at your feet. And your mission and ministry will be accomplished, man. Just jump. But Jesus knows who he is. He knows his father. And he knows that he wasn't sent by the father to create a sensation by spectacular stunts. He was sent by the Father to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and ultimately not to be loved and embraced by the crowds, but to be rejected by them, to be handed over to suffering and death by them so that in their place he could die for them. So Jesus says, now... Don't buy it. It said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is saying, man, your way is so slick, so sassy. It makes great sense in the eyes of the world. People would love it, but it's not God's way. I trust the Father and do things his way. He loves me and approves of me, and that's all that matters. We're one. I and the Father and the Father in me, and I will never do things your way. I will always follow God's way because that is the way that every other person who believes in me will find his love and approval. Y'all, have you, have you been there? Have you been tempted to seek the approval of people rather than be a servant of Christ? Rather than trust the Father, Father and obey the word? Satan seeks to persuade you so. And so he'll come at you when you're sad and lonely, feeling betrayed and neglected, and suggest that you put on airs, that you put on masks, that you put on a show and promote yourself by doing worldly things to get worldly love and enjoy worldly praise, but it's false, it's empty, it's shallow. It will not bring life because it's not the Father's way. So what might it be for you? Appetite, ambition, approval, little buffet of it all. As Blake Coffey shared with us a couple of weeks ago on Vision Weekend, in unity principle number two, there's only one enemy of the church, and it's Satan, and he hates you. And he will do everything that he possibly can to keep you from trusting the Father and obeying his word. He will do everything that he possibly can to keep us out of our identity in Christ and Christ out of us and Christ out of our relationships. But here's the good news. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. That where Adam failed, where Israel failed, now the second Adam and the new Israel succeeds. You know what that means? That means in Christ, we are more than conquerors. 
Satan is real. Spiritual warfare exists. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil that attack and fight for our very soul. That come after our identity and try and keep us away from Christ and living according to his life in us and our life in him. Christ wants to lure us away from trusting and obeying and he'll lie about our identity, he'll salt our faith and he'll distract our worship. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, we gotta stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And we stay alert, we stand firm by staying connected with Christ and by staying accountable in Christ-centered relationships with one another. Who knows your vulnerabilities? Who knows whether you're more susceptible to being tempted by appetite or ambition or approval? Who do you share that with? Who prays for you? And has your permission to ask you how you're doing with that? Who, who gives you space to confess your sin and respond to you with grace, not judgment, and encouragement and prayer? Because the devil's poised to pounce, and he'd like nothing better than to catch you isolated and outside the protection of gospel community. That's, that's what a lion does. He goes after the one that's isolated and by themselves and vulnerable. And so one of the greatest things that we can do to love and serve one another is to speak the gospel to ourselves and to speak the gospel to one another, to remind one another who Jesus is and what he's done and how that gives us new life and a new perspective. When's the last someone, time someone just spoke the gospel over you? I need that every day, y'all. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives us an outline for how to do this. He gives it in the form of a metaphor, armor. He says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the, all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Do you know what the armor is? The armor represents our identity in Christ how we abide in Christ and how Christ abides in us, who he is and who we are in him. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth. Christ is the truth. And it is his truth that has set us free that we might be free. And the body armor, the breastplate of God's righteousness. Religion is dead. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to win God's approval. He's done it all for us in Christ. He has clothed us in his righteousness. We are the righteousness of Christ. That's who we are. Shoes, the shoes of peace. We were created to be people of shalom. Peace with God and peace with one another. And in Christ, we have been reconciled to a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. We've been given that ministry of reconciliation. We are people of peace who don't keep the peace, but release the peace. 
belts, breastplates, shoes, the shield of faith that stops the fiery arrows of the devil, the helmet of salvation, that the old is gone, that the new has come, that we're new creations, that we have been redeemed physically, emotionally, spiritually, here and now and for all eternity, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that we are meant to wield in season and out of season, delicately and yet firmly. How do you need to be dressed up in the gospel? Who is it this week that needs you to dress them up in the gospel? Reminding them who Christ is and who they are and how therefore to live in grateful response. I mean, this is what happens, isn't it? Someone comes to you and shares a struggle or a hurt, they're anxious or afraid, or they're feeling guilty, and all of a sudden it becomes a divinely appointed opportunity to remind them of who Jesus is and who they are in him. And that's what we seize. That's what we share. That's who we are. Paul promises the church in Corinth that God's faithful and he won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that we can endure it. And the first couple of times I read that, I'm like, there's no way. God always gives me more than I can handle. I realize Paul's not writing to a single believer in Corinth. He's writing to the body of believers in the city of Corinth. Which means God will never give us anything that we can't handle as long as we're together, interdependently, trusting the Father and putting his word into practice together. Together. God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you. He will always come through. And nine times out of 10, he's going to support you through a relationship because God helps his people through his people. That's a significant part of what it means for us to be a gospel community with unity. Unity with the Father and the Son, just as Jesus prayed why he has died and risen. The oneness that he designed for us from the beginning. So who are your people? Who are the two or three people in your life who will love you and stand with you and support you and defend you and help you abide in Christ and Christ abide in you no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty no matter what the trial, no matter what the accusation, no matter what the temptation, those people are God-appointed people and they're important for each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. Jesus never intended us to follow him alone, but in community, corporately, in life groups, as friends and family. We overcome temptation by remaining true to our identity in Christ and standing firm, trusting the Father and obeying his word. And that happens best in relationship, in gospel community. That's what it's all about. Together, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Christ has overcome sin and death and the devil. And in him, the victory belongs to us. 
You know what that means? That means that you are a resistor of temptation. That's who you are in Christ. You trust the Father and that he withholds nothing from you that is good for you and glorifying to him and his perfect purposes in your life. That's who you are. You don't just hear and read the word, you obey the word and you put it into practice because that's who you are in Christ. He is your good shepherd. You know his voice. You trust his voice. He watches you're going out and you're coming in and he will always lead you to streams of living water and green pastures that is good for your protection and the health of your soul. 1 John 3, 8 says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Y'all, Jesus' victory is your victory. In Christ, you are an overcomer. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. In Christ, you have been raised up in victory over sin, over death, over the devil. Victorious. That's who you are in Christ. Let's pray.